Blog Talk Radio. Great joy and good afternoon, my friend. The Nepalese Meditation Bowl is chiming, centering your mind and delight on the art of the CEO. The show that brings you the most fascinating and really the most helpful leaders in the business community from around our terrestrial orb. I am Bart Jackson, the Hieronymus Bosch of business. So, Intellectual property is really those creations of the human intellect which help uh, or make a profit for the company and which they can also frequently be assigned as a somewhat of a monopoly to uh, by the owner, by law. But they really are the second most valuable thing a company can possess. So the question comes to you, who owns these creations? Don't we need to keep them uh, securely uh, protected so that uh, those who own them can can make them work, and don't we also need to credit the inventors for their creations? And how do we protect them, and still allow uh, the best possible discoveries opening for society? Well, by grace of high intellect and hard work, we have pharma and cutting edge biotech's greatly sought after attorney and an entrepreneurial guide star, truly, Phil Crowley is here to unsnarl the IP Gordian knot and lay down some logical and some very practical pathways along the IP route for you. Phil, I'm so glad that you could uh, make your way back from Utah and come come on our show today. Thank you so much, Bart. It's great to be with you. But, you know, you uh, gave us quite a teaser of a question there. If intellectual property is the second most valuable asset, what's the first? Well, I would have to say the first are the individuals, the people themselves, because they're not only the brains, but they are also the arms, and that's how everything get happen. Everything happens. So I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, um, and I will get on with a show that hopefully will uh, is carefully cuisine to make your careers thrive and our ventures flourish. Phil. Now, before we go illegal, I'd like to sort of shift ethically for a moment. My my personal intellect, my my creative imaginations, and all that I bring forth from this confused brain, they're they're really a valuable, priceless asset. So, if I bring some new innovation forth, what right does the company or the university have to to take and remake and profit from it? Well, that's a good question, Bart. Uh, and these days, creating intellectual property is a very important part of the jobs of many knowledge workers. Uh, the focus is that the pay and benefits provided by the companies are intended to compensate them for the time and effort required to create the IP. You know, it's different from the days of you know, hauling uh, bumpers and putting them onto cars and putting doors on cars, what the knowledge worker does is create knowledge that is used and usable by others. So mm-hmm. that's the case when IP is creating using the company's facilities and on company time. But you raise a good point. There's a simple three-part test that I use to determine whether it's fair for a person to claim that the intellectual property uh, is his or her individual asset. Now, okay. if, the, if the person were to create uh, intellectual property first outside the scope of activities for his or her job, second, without the use of company facilities, intellectual property, or other assets, and third, on his or her own time, 
it seems to me that that would be the worker's own property. Let me give you an example that may help to clarify okay, what yeah, I, I mean. Ask. Suppose a person is employed by a business that creates and manages websites. The scope of the right. work is website design and website, <laughs> excuse me, administration. Suppose he also has a hobby of building and flying remote-controlled aircraft. So this person has a workspace, a workshop at home where he builds the aircraft and the controllers. And then over several weekends and after returning home from work during the week, he creates an innovative type of controller and files a patent application on it. It's clear in that case that the IP created is owned by the individual, not by the company. Now, where things get foggy is in those cases where you can't really make all those three uh, statements and qualify in those particular ways. I'm sure, and people, and and very few, and I make a a drone to be used at work, and therefore, since I'm using some of the work tools and write, I I, I say And so this is is just part of the thing where uh, law is a blanket, and humanity must come in to deal. Actually, uh, Phil, one thing we probably should have gotten to right first is intellectual property is a term that many of us toss around in relative ignorance. Uh, Could you just give us a a good, solid, simple definition of of intellectual property and some of the things it covers? Sure, I can do that, Bart. Uh, I think of intellectual property as ideas, concepts and information that is or may be uh, useful in some activity. Some examples of that uh, would be things like uh, information in the uh, public domain, uh, trade secrets, patents, trademarks, and copyrights. And, you know, to go through the entire list, I think most people are familiar with those concepts so I, I don't think I need to go into an extensive uh, description other than to say that uh, people tend to focus a great deal on patents because they provide the opportunity to exclude others from using the same ideas to create products or services out in the marketplace. Well, could you give us an example of then of taking patents? Because I know that's very confusing, particularly with knowledge-producing uh, people, give us an example about uh, about a patent that. Uh... Well, here's one common misconception about patents. Some people believe that a if you hold a patent, that permits you to practice, and that's the term of art, the particular technology that's described in the patent. Actually, that's not correct. Um, the patent permits you to prevent others from using the technology. Let's take a really simple example. Let's suppose that Company W has a patent on making bicycle wheels. So it is able to exclude competitors uh, during the term of the patent from making bicycle wheels. Suppose Company S has a patent on an improved spoke for bicycle wheels. Uh, The nature of a patent is that Company W can prevent Company S from making the bicycle wheels with the improved spoke. And Company S can prevent Company W from producing bicycle wheels with improved spokes. Company W may still 
produce the bicycle wheels with the regular spokes, but unless um, each company grants to the other a patent license or permission, right. then they can't produce the bicycle wheels with the improved spokes. So, I mean, that, I that's that, a I, simple I way like of think, thinking think, about it. I think there's one thing, that, and you brought up something here that's true. I have always said that patents and copyrights are... They are not licenses. They are. They're not preventions. They're hunting licenses, and by that I mean they allow company W, company S. They allow me, as uh, having just penned the great American novel, to go out and hunt down and legally seek redress when somebody trespasses. The government, the patent office, does not take care of this. The government does not take care of your interests on that. That's up to you. Correct or not correct? That is correct. That is correct. It's an individual right, and the company has to enforce that right, uh, or yeah. it can subject itself to the claim that it has uh, uh, sat on its rights and, by refusing to act, has, in essence, uh, provided permission right. to yeah. infringers to go ahead and yeah. use the patented technology. So that's so why it's a, important. So there's a lesson. Don't don't sit on your rights. Exactly. <laughs> um, and with this uh, really sort of brief and tempting beginning of today's Feast of Wisdom, uh, allow me to take pause here and, and uh, fulfill my duties as proper host and lay before you a few utensils for the furthering of today's Feast of Wisdom, which Bill's doing a marvelous job so, thus far. So first utensils I always do. Allow me to remind each of you, hearing my voice, that the good Lord has gifted you with the title and privileges of Chief Executive Officer of yourself. And that's really the most important position you'll ever hold in your career. So allow me to ask you, will this be the day that you examine the source of your deep and guiding principles and then ask, does that particular belief bring me benefit or joy or did I just adopt it because some great leader said it would really be best for me? The choice, my friend, is truly yours. As a second utensil, I think we need to steep our lips into uh, a little laughter and take a scriptural recitation from the 102 Best Business Quips book. So let me fumble around here. Oh, okay, here we go. This is number 90. <clears throat> Tis puzzling that most of the advice on leading others comes from people who don't. <laughs> and as an afterthought, like uh, an abstinent priest advising newlyweds, experience is not the sole necessary ingredient in passing on workable wisdom. When it comes to leadership training, there is no art really that, that's so incredibly individually cre cultivated and created. So gather your examples and your tactics from all corners and just remember that you really have to blend well all that marvelous essence that is you. So if you smirked a bit over that quip, we have them literally by the books full. Just visit bartsbooks.com. That's B-A-R-T-S-B-O-O-K-S.com. Pick up your copy of 102 Best Business Quips, and you are going to have an absolute cannonade of jovial witticisms that will inspire and uh, bring chortles and days cheer to your fellow wage slaves at work. And the third utensil, uh, as 
I suppose we might appropriately call this the brain food spoon, we proffer you the answer to last week's business quotation. That is, the author who noted, things come to those who wait, but the things but they are the things that are left behind by those who hustle. <laughs> I love that. That was spoken by none other than our 16th president of the very ambitious, Mr. Abraham Lincoln. So stick with us, my friend, uh, because later in the show, Blurting Your Way, comes another enriching quotation. And if you are among the learned souls who knows the author of that quote, simply scrawl that sage's name down as you believe him or her to be and email it right off to info at bartsbooks.com. That's I-N-F-O at B-A-R-T-S-B-O-O-K-S dot com. And if you're correct, your knowledge is going to earn you a marvelous gift freshly disemboweled from the dungeons of Bart's Books Bookstore. And now, with all our utensils at hand, my friend, let's turn uh, that masterful intellect of yours back to attorney Phil Crowley and find out how best we can safeguard all you've got upstairs. Phil, as an entrepreneur, I I know my great new invention uh, is is going to be shared by my employees. I'm going to be dealing with contractors. Uh, It's going to – and the market – uh, is filled with unseen competitors, even if I, uh, whether I'm aware or not. So don't I need to, from the very outset, corral my IP and get some fences made, even before the prototype? I mean, when, when do I begin? Uh, yes, Bart. It's always a good practice to have each employee and also independent contractors and outside uh, independent contracting vendors sign a mm-hmm. written agreement when they start uh, their work for the company, requiring the person or company to keep company data confidential and to uh, evidence the company's ownership of any intellectual property created. It's very important to have that in writing because in order to be enforceable, a transfer of an interest in intellectual property needs to be in writing. And so I've seen companies uh, disappointed in their thought that they own particular intellectual property of some employees when they did not have written agreements in place, and it's a fairly straightforward and simple thing to do. Right. So are, are most companies, would you say you deal a lot with entrepreneurs, do most companies do that well or not? Um, I think that among the clients that I have and those that I see, uh, many are uh, good at it, particularly the ones who have uh, been associated with large firms uh, that have uh, a whole set of policies and procedures, so they're quite accustomed to it. Sometimes newly minted entrepreneurs and academic researchers don't have the – appreciation for the importance of having uh, confidentiality agreements and in certain cases non-competition agreements in place although the the issue of non-competition agreements is so complex that we could do an entire program on that but having an agreement in writing that sets Mm. out the basic parameters of the employment relationship along the lines that Mm. we were discussing is very important and the proper place to have that Uh, initiated is right upon the the hiring of the individual or firm involved. Right. Sign this son and you're hired. Right. Absolutely. Now, Phil, there are um, other things that, uh, such as 
we, you mentioned uh, trade secrets. What about things like non-patentable business methods? Things, um, I mean, I know McDonald's has just come out with its secret, uh, literally has just put on the market its secret sauce, so it's no longer secret. Okay, that's an item. We got that. But they have certain ways of doing business. Supposing I have uh, a particular method of selling or sales protocol. Uh, some goes back, there was a unique thing, virtually unique, held by the Fuller Brush Company years ago. Uh, is there any, are there, is it possible to keep, uh, what, what protections can I use for a non-patentable business method? Or is it possible to, to keep that secret or protect it in some way? Well, uh, again, going back to the practice of having employees sign a confidentiality agreement that requires that they keep company information uh, confidential, that they not use it except for the company's benefit. And then also having some practical practices like marking confidential information as confidential and protecting it and not Mm. disclosing it and leaving it around carelessly can help to uh, convince a court in an appropriate case that the information truly is confidential and is being held in confidence so that if if there comes a time when a company needs to enforce its rights, if it shows that it has used diligent efforts to keep the information confidential, then they'll have a much better case of enforcing rights against, for instance, an employee who tries to go out and use the company's business methods at a competing company or in establishing their own company. And and, and the company said absolutely nothing about that. Yes, right. I, I you know, I, so a lot of this is is what I'd be saying correctly is you have to indicate intent uh, to keep things secret, right? That is correct, and then you must follow up consistently uh, on that intent. So it's it's great to have policies and procedures, but as we well know in business, sometimes people don't follow those. In this particular area, it's important to respect and follow the procedures and to have policies and procedures about the treatment of confidential information internally. Best laid plans, Afghan Deglay. If you have just joined us, you are listening to The Art of the CEO, which every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time streams magically through the overwhelmingly misunderstood realms of cyberspace. We may listen and download it by visiting blogtalkradio.com slash the art of the CEO. That's blogtalkradio.com slash the art of the CEO. And right about now, I think it is time to take a brief survey from this Our Feast of Wisdom and allow me to introduce to you the company by whose good graces we are here today. That company is Prometheus Publishing, creator of, among many other divisions, Bart's Book's Ultimate Business Guides. And this week, uh, Prometheus invites you to visit its online store, bartsbooks.com, that's B-A-R-T-S-B-O-O-K-S.com, and let your fingers stroll through the bookstore and take a look at this one. Behind every successful woman is herself. And this is a marvelous gem of a book uh, that, that gathered together over 100 top women business leaders, ask them to reveal their tactics, their disciplines, their secrets, and most importantly, their mindsets. This book is an excellent uh, way to take your career 
put it into perspective and give you some good directions and to help you launch an enterprise. So it makes an excellent gift for anyone who is setting into business. And again, you may uh, find that at bartsbooks.com. That's B-A-R-T-S-B-O-O-K-S.com. And while you're at it, while you're right on that homepage, don't forget to click on that little blue mailbox because when you click on that little blue mailbox, you can start subscribing to business scripts that wing your way every week through the eternal enigma of email. And they, it'll give you a little chuckle and a little bit of wisdom every uh, every week as you kick it off. And heaven knows we could all use a little laughter. Now, uh, Phil, I know that venture capitalists and bankers and other funders, they all really need to see IP security as part of their collateral. So if I am in starting up with a company or expanding or, or seeking funding, are, could you give me sort of a quick laundry list of, of IP securities that my investors and lenders want to see in place? Well, Bart, it's much of what uh, we've been discussing in terms of proper policies and procedures to have a written intellectual property protection policy and uh, to enforce that, to have agreements in place with uh, employees and vendors that have appropriate protections uh, to ensure that any intellectual property created is the property of the company to have a process of doing an intellectual property inventory or assessment to determine Ah. what of the company's activities may be available and eligible for patent protection and to make some decisions as to how best to protect the various classes of information as either uh, a patent Uh, confidential information, or in some cases even creating a publication to affirmatively put the information out into the public domain so that it cannot be patented, so that everybody can use it. Over the years, IBM has used that that technique in order to uh, clear out innovation space around some of their seminal patents, making the remainder of the area basically public knowledge and uh, increasing the need to license their patents. So it's that kind of attention to detail that uh, investors and particular venture capitalists like to see because in many cases, particularly with uh, my clients, which tend to be emerging and startup companies, it is the elect- uh, intellectual property that is created and is to be created uh, by the employees. That is really what the investors are investing in. Yeah. Yeah, I I like two things that you said on that. The the idea, first of all, the i uh, the IP assessment. That that sounds very. That, that I would like to to see uh, that in in the company that I'm investing in. And frankly, it, it can become literally a selling point as well. And also setting the boundaries, as you say, between um, what you, what you have said very clearly the boundaries between your IP and what what goes into the public. 
And, and one other all... point I'd like to raise oh, yeah. uh, at, at this point, Bart, and that is sure. that it's important to uh, make these uh, practical kind of decisions. What I like to do with my clients is uh, focus on what their goals and needs are in terms of driving the business. If one had an unlimited amount of money, there are a whole host of things that one could do to protect intellectual property and patenting things, but that costs a lot of money. That's cash yeah. that could be used to, to stimulate and grow the business. And so it's important to weigh the risks as, as opposed to the benefits of uh, uh, patenting particular kinds of innovation and to try to use some judgment. And, and that's where the CEO, the businessman, has a very important role to play in terms of assessing the potential value of innovations and whether it makes sense to keep it as a trade secret or to file a patent application, and then also in what jurisdictions, because we tend to think of this in a national sense in the United States, but uh, the patent filings can be made worldwide as well. So there are a whole host of decisions that CEOs uh, need to confer with their counsel about to make sure they're making the right decisions. A quick word on international, now that you bring it up. Uh, it, that uh, since we've said enforcement does come from, must come from the owning company, uh, that you can that, that you can't fight the piracy that exists abroad. Uh, particularly if you don't have your uh, a plant with boots on the ground there, so uh, th- there must be some. Are there choices when you just have to sort of let it go and assume that, that the piracy will continue and and say, well, that's great flattery and just compete ahead? Or uh, you see what I'm saying? That it's well, so right. It's, uh, it's uh, but there are rights of a patent holder to prevent uh, material that they can demonstrate violates their patent from coming into the United States. I mean, the typical examples are there are some developing nations, uh, Brazil, uh, China, where um, there appears to be a great deal of patent infringement uh, ongoing. But uh, when an innovator company has a patent in the United States, if the patent is on a product and a product feature, it's fairly easy to see whether or not that product um, evidences that feature and is imported into the United States, and then that can be stopped. Where there is greater difficulty and somewhat less protection is cases where there is a process patent, a patent on the process of making the product. And so it becomes more difficult to prove that the patented process was used in order to make the product. Ah, of course, because it's it's made out of the area, right? I yes. Think. There is one thing that that as as we go through all this protection and dealing with the employees and so forth, I I want I have my company. I am the CEO. I want to protect my entities and my business, my companies. But I, I need to be human here. I at the same time I need to foster that spirit that rewards, compensates, and, and encourages innovation. So what are some of the elements that you see the wise entrepreneur might include in the hiring agreement that would kind of keep this balance to sort of encourage the innovation and not feel make the fellow not feel like he's he's a mind slave to the company at the same time I know what you mean uh, for it. Right, yeah. <laughs> so what do you think? You got any, is, is, how do you keep the balance? 
Well, uh, there are ways, and yeah, I think it's important for CEOs to remember that researchers are human too, and they respond not just to money, but also to the recognition and to the support and to the regard that is shown to them. My former employer, uh, I worked for 32 years in the Johnson & Johnson Law Department, had an annual award celebration that brought together researchers from all areas of the company, and those with the most impactful innovations were recognized at the meeting, and uh, their innovations were publicized, and they've received financial rewards. But my sense is that the researchers are involved in the research because they loved what they do, and having the yep. recognition of their peers is an important part of the compensation. Of course, um, a business owner can always set up a discretionary bonus fund and then make awards from that fund based on the assessed impact of the innovation. Uh, You might have one level of award for significant innovations and another more modest uh, award for people who file an invention disclosure or who have a minor improvement to a product. But it's something that should be set up as a written procedure so that people can see that uh, they have the sense they're being treated fairly, and I would even advocate have some researchers on the committee that makes the assessment so that the research community or the uh, general worker community sees that there is participation by people at their level in making these assessments rather than simply right. have it delivered by management as a fait accompli. There's also, you're absolutely right, and they want this. There is another thing I might add that uh, just that uh, there are many award organizations, outside organizations, that offer awards and recognition things. Uh, The Association for Corporate Growth has a huge innovation award. This is that you as the wise CEO have to look out for these things. Enter your people into such uh, nominations and contests. Phil, we're uh, there's one more thing that I did want to get into. Actually, there's several. There's about 12. But the real <laughs> truth of it is uh, there's one more thing we've got to just just touch on before we go. And you hinted at it, and non-compete agreements. Now, they seem to me they're necessities uh, to, for corporate, to prevent espionage, to prevent uh, persons, you know, taking – Taking ideas and selling, but this, but suppose uh, I am leaving and I want to. It's an old trick. I leave. I want to start my own company. I want to take my salespeople with me quickly. I want to take my old clients with me. I'm sorry. Um, how could, is is there a way that from the, that you can write a reasonable non-compete agreement at the beginning? Give us one or two quick thumbnail caveats uh, for non-competes as as, as we're structuring them. All right. For uh, non-competes, there are three basic provisions, and it is a reasonableness test that is typically applied. The um, non-competition covenant needs to be reasonable in terms of the scope of the work. If uh, it's a salesperson, uh, they they might be restricted from sales jobs, but not other jobs. Secondly, after scope of work, is the uh, scope of time. Uh, Is the person dealing with information that has a very short half-life? 
well, then perhaps a six-month or a nine-month restriction would be important. Whereas if someone is dealing with confidential information that has a long, useful life, then a year or even perhaps two years might be an appropriate period of time. And finally, the third element is geographical extent. If you have a local business in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, it doesn't make sense to have a worldwide non-competition covenant, but only to cover right. the areas where the person was involved in, in their activities. Whereas for a researcher who is involved in pharmaceutical products of a particular type, a worldwide non-competition. That it could be worldwide. Yep. Phil, thank you very much. This has been great. Just really quickly before we let you go, how, if I need uh, advice on anything entrepreneurial or IP, how can, how can I get in touch with you? Just head out Service. to my website, www.philcrowley.com. There's a contact form out there. There are also some useful blogs and information about upcoming events uh, at which uh, I'll be speaking about legal issues. Wonderful. And you can also find out more about Phil and, and his new events He's by visiting theartoftheceo.com. That's theartoftheceo.com. Phil, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're going to have to get you back and do copyright one of these days as soon as we possibly can. So I thank you very much. And thank you, Bart. It was fun doing this. Thank you. This has been great. It really has. And as we round out today's feast, I'm Bart Jackson, your curator of business wisdom, leaving you with today's business quotation. That is, who was the person who said, intellectual property has the shelf life of a banana? And as a hint, the uh, this Microsoft CEO holds more IP and donates more hard cash to charities than any other individual in America. So if you know the author of that, scribble his name down as you believe him or her to be and send it right off to info at bartsbooks.com to win an absolutely power-thrusting, life-changing gift from the dungeons of Bart's Books Bookstore. And as a parting shot, in the words of my wife's husband, Collecting data is so much fun, it gives you a great vacation from the gut-wrenching search for real and practical truths. And to you, who gleefully have been sharing our feast, I hope you've enjoyed uh, the Art of the CEO as much as Phil and I have had uh, bringing it to you. It's been wonderful. And remember that you may download this on all our shows by visiting blogtalkradio.com slash theartoftheceo. And finally, to you, to you who have honored us with your time, may I say, as always, it has been a privilege. I thank you.